Hausers, Michael Braithwaite here. You are joining us on the way home, and it's so appreciated. Uh, I am from Blue Door, of course, Blue Door organization in the Northern GTA that is doing fabulous work in areas of housing, health, and meaningful and well-paying employment. And we do this part, we do this podcast in partnership with the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. They're doing incredible work. And hey, when you hear this podcast, it, I think this might be the last day for you to register for next week's conference in Halifax. So take advantage of that. It's an incredible conference with speakers from all around the world, great keynote speakers. Uh, the Minister of Housing is speaking. I was just announced, uh, Margaret Poe from uh, um, BC is speaking as well. And so many good and awesome speakers. And one of the people that will be there is our guest today, and that is Lee Bercy. Uh, I can't put Lee in a box, right, to say, hey, Lee does X. Lee is an advocate. He is a lived expert. He is a musician. He is an actor. Uh, he is all of the above, and he is quite a character, and he's quite passionate about preventing and ending homelessness. We talk about Lee's journey on today's pod, all the different things he's doing. He's now uh, out east on the East Coast doing some work there. Uh, his work, sorry, I forgot to mention he's a politician, a former politician as well. He was a city councillor, a town councillor. So Lee does so many different things and he attacks his challenge for so Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project, or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. So many different angles. Fascinating guy. And so great to talk with him. We talk about some of the work he's doing right now. Uh, he is impactful. He is an advocate. Uh, he is so great for the sector. And I was so pleased to talk with him. Let's go to that conversation. Just for my people in the sector, it is so good uh, to have you on again. You're part of, uh, you actually, this you, you were one of our original uh, friends on uh, Out of the Blue. Now you're on the way home. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you. I'm sporting my on the way home uh, hat. We were talking just before we went on air, but how mine looks a little more worn, you know, living on the front lines like I do. Uh, <laughs> I have to say a big thank you to my friend Michael, who uh, gifted me this hat while I was uh, at a recent convention. I've been wearing it every day ever since. So I'm happy That's to awesome. be here. Honored. Awesome. Appreciate the time and the opportunity. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for being a walking billboard for the podcast. We, you know, and we we talk a lot about, of course, housing and homelessness on this podcast. We do have a signature question we ask all guests because it's personal to each guest, and that is, Lee, what does home mean to you? Uh, I remember when I was on the uh, Ontario Nonprofit Housing Association Board of Directors, there was one slogan that stuck with me, and that was, "Housing is the home of all issues." And I thought that was just fantastic in terms of you know labeling and marketing and I, I really feel as though it's something we should be inserting into our our vocabulary more often when we're having discussions about these issues because uh, what housing means to me is harm reduction what housing means to me is stability what housing means to me is uh, an opportunity for someone uh, to focus on their dreams. And sometimes those dreams could be anything from a remedial five to nine, or nine to five job, which is entirely respectable, 
Uh, it could be going back to school and furthering your education. It could be caring for a sick relative. It could be just surviving. And, and uh, you know, I think that's something that uh, took a little while for me to get comfortable with as someone who tends to really enjoy doing things uh, and being a part of different projects and events and, and as someone who doesn't sleep a lot and wears many hats. As someone who, who uh, relies on stimulation, I don't see my home as much as some other people. But, you know, I have a beautiful wife who uh, depends on my home. I have a mother who has a variety of health issues that depends on my home as, as a safe space. Uh, you know, it, it vanquishes some of those less than positive thoughts and those not so positive self-affirmations that some people tend to, uh, tend to find uh, themselves confronted with regularly in their life, whether it be because uh, maybe uh, they've, uh, they've been, it's been ingrained in them generationally that uh, you have to pull up your boots and, you know, pull up your bootstraps and, and get to work and do more. Uh, or maybe it's, uh, you know, that they've had a variety of traumatic and negative interactions, which people in my household have. Uh, for them, they have a safe space. They have a refuge. And I think that that's really fundamental. Uh, I remember when Il Scarlet from Hamilton put out that song, you know, uh, I've referenced this in other speeches. It's a great song, but I remember being really frustrated with this message. And I believe it was like, I'm sick and tired of everybody thinking they know what's best for me. Sometimes I just want to be nothing special. And I thought, no, we're all special. Everybody's got so much to offer. Don't talk that way. But the more I digested the message as I matured and uh, stepped away from the limelight of punk rock, I started to realize what they're really saying is it's a housing first principle. It's the idea that I'm tired of everyone prescribing for me what my life should look like. And uh, I don't necessarily have to fit into that box. And sometimes the basics and what's most simple and direct is actually fundamentally what's right for me. And, and as I look at it from that lens, I think that's what housing means to me. The idea that uh, you have one less obstacle uh, in your way should you want to pursue the arts and culture sector. One less obstacle should you uh, have to focus on your mental health or recovery. One less obstacle towards raising their family. One less obstacle towards... Uh, surviving. And, and I think as the housing is the home of all issues is so many of these other issues are completely interlocked, whether it be our long-term care, our access to, you know, healthcare and dependable healthcare and not just hallway healthcare. Uh, all of these political conversations are challenging, but they really come down to one key ingredient, which is stability. And for me, housing is stability. It's the ability for me to wake up tomorrow and not wonder if the sky is going to fall for me or if my roof is going to blow off and I'm going to be exposed to the elements and, and discouraged from focusing on all the things that uh, make me who I am and make those I love who they are or want to be as well. Hey, man, that might be one of the best answers we've ever had to that question. Like I said, it's personal, that road, but just to have that explained, I think if I dial it down to what you're saying, everything starts and ends with home. And, and you can't focus on any of those things you mentioned, employment, leisure, fun, work, health, like all those things, they all start with home, right? Without a home, they all fall off the map. So well said. Now, listen, I think most of our listeners, because many are in the sector, know who you are. But in case someone's been living underneath a rock, uh, you are, like, you've got such a colorful, amazing story. You've done it. You've really done it all. You're, you're a musician, politician. 
uh, frontline worker. You're just really a mix of so many. And I think it's probably what makes you great at what you do is because you have all those hats that you wear, including the on the way home hat. But if you could walk us through uh, kind of a Coles Oats version of Lee's life into this work, and you recently had a move to the east coast of Canada uh, since we last uh, had you on the podcast a couple of years back. So just, just walk us through this journey so people can get to know Lee Bercy. Sure, sure. I mean, uh, you know, a, a lot of this conversation and a lot of all conversations about this issue seem to be about vernacular and about, you know, uh, language and, and terminologies. Uh, the truth is, is that these are human stories and uh, I'd be the first one with any lived experience, but also working on the front line. Uh, to, to say that we need to humanize the, the, the people that we speak uh, about and to and the voices that we, we need to amplify. Um, a lot of housing homelessness uh, data exists. And the problem with data is, is that it's completely inspecific to the individual. Uh, numbers often tell us whatever they want to. And I know that Pierre Polivare's numbers are going to be very different than Justin Trudeau's. But in the end, they're all making a case. Making those cases is great, but we really need to strive to get to know the people that uh, are affected by the, the legislation and the decisions and the management and the funding streams. And, and I think a, a big piece of lived experience storytelling uh, has to start with, uh, you know, charity starting at home, as the old adage goes, uh, ironically enough, uh, you know, before I can expect anyone to uh, pour their heart out in a vulnerable manner and, and let me into a uh, to their, uh, I won't say a lack of a better term for bedrooms, more like let me into uh, into their their storybook, their journal, their keepsakes, their their lockbox. Uh, you know, uh, they they need to know who I am too, and why they should relate to me. And frankly, I think that you know, while we can come up with numbers and data all day that talk about the investment in housing, financialization, uh, what type of funding streams need to exist and why. The truth is there's nothing more powerful than the vulnerability of someone being willing to tell their own story. Uh, and the opportunity to amplify that, of course, is the best part of this. So, you know, if I'm to start with myself, I'm incredibly unspectacular, despite all the wonderful things Michael just said. Uh, I work multiple jobs and have to in today's gig work economy, uh, no matter uh, which government I might be working for at any given time or which contract that might look pleasing to the eyes, uh, you know, whatever number on a spreadsheet doesn't change the fact that when fuel's $1.88, I'm going to be working three of those jobs, much like many people. Um, but one thing I am is upwardly motivated. Uh, and that's, that's a big piece for me is resilience. Not everyone is in a position to be quite as resilient, and nor should they have to be, because frankly, my life has been very fun, but incredibly taxing, uh, emotionally and physically, and definitely mentally. Uh, I was a former homeless youth, uh, but it was a brief time in my life, but uh, my mother was uh, subjected to a lot of domestic abuse in her marriage. It took me a long time to be able to put that label comfortably on it and talk about it in open forums, because like a lot of people who were in those situations, we ended up back at that location so many times that I just saw it as an unstable home life. I never really correlated how completely atrocious it is for a young, you know, 30-year-old mother and 14-year-old and kid to be living in a park or a hotel or in their car and more or less be subject to the financial abuse of, of a patriarchal household with a character that maybe wasn't so kind and compassionate when he could have been. 
Uh, and now that said, you know, no hard feelings. I'm, I'm, to some degree, it's worked out well for me. I've been able to uh, leverage this experience into learning about a lot of other people's experiences and been able to uh, help uh, create a lot of different narratives and shape a lot of different discussions. So I don't take it back. And, you know, as he since departed, I, I hope wherever he is, he's at peace. That said, uh, in that time, I went on to become uh, a municipal counselor in my community. Uh, I was 23 when I ran, I think 24 when elected, still sitting on my student government, not having a frickin' clue what to do. Uh, I, I was uh, someone who was gifted with uh, some language skills and some personability and some engagement tools, but frankly, I was never an exceptional student. Uh, I had attention deficit disorder that went undiagnosed well into my 30s, uh, and there were just a lot of... Uh, a lot of factors to consider for my upbringing. I worked in uh, youth uh, youth groups. I hosted a lot of rock concerts. And I think for me, music was such a massively important tool, which I think I discussed last time I was with you in great detail. I know you and uh, your uh, producer were talking about one of you seeing The Clash, and uh, my envy will never, ever subside for that. Uh, but that said, uh, music opens so many doors uh, because it's one of the few places where you can be entirely vulnerable on stage and it's just considered part of the performance. If I have uh, borderline personality disorder and I have a meltdown at work in a corporate setting, there may be HR policies that exist today that might protect me, but my colleagues will look at me different. If I'm in a retail setting that's non-unionized and non-government, I risk losing my job. If it happens in a school setting, uh, I'm going to be prescribed a guidance counselor and, and possibly have my credentials at risk. But if I'm on stage, I can have a complete colossal breakdown and turn it into performance art. And that's such a really powerful thing. I can be as happy or as sad or as emotional or as bloody frigging angry as I want to be. And uh, I got to be honest, it's probably saved my life more times than I could ever get a, get a credit for. Uh, as the story went on, I uh, started experimenting with a lot of different things. Uh, I have done pro wrestling. I have been a mall Santa. I've been a drag queen. Uh, I've written children's books. I am a in, uh, what, international number one best-selling co-author of a book uh, on Amazon. I believe seven lists, four, four of which were number one in four different countries. Really exciting, something that no one can ever take from me, and I'm probably the poorest best-selling author who's uh, probably ever lived. Uh, and I'm okay with that because you know it was a really wonderful opportunity, uh, and uh, it amplifies my voice. I've won some speakers' contests. I've participated in the battles of the bands. Uh, I have uh, been a reporter on homelessness for Invisible People, which is one of, if not the best, universal online publication about homelessness that exists in North America uh, and has uh, the most incredible reach. So please definitely check out Invisible People, not just my articles, but all of them. Uh, really outstanding cast of characters, and Mark Horvath deserves such tremendous respect for being able to leverage his lived experience into helping so many other people and telling stories that are gritty and uncomfortable and not just data and numbers. Uh, I have uh, been everything from a loss prevention officer and security guard to a stage crew for Blue Rodeo, and I've uh, enjoyed a lot of these experiences, but I've also worked in shelters, and uh, one thing that I've learned very quickly about shelters is they're not home. It's not necessarily uh, the be-all, end-all that maybe some of the small landlords might uh, might have tried to convey it as during the COVID pandemic, uh, when uh, social dollars were being poured into shelters and them saying, well, then you, you should reopen the tribunal hearings. It's like, well, they're not quite the same. Uh, you know, seconding someone to a shelter is, is, is a very challenging environment. Uh, and I've been, uh, I can say that one of the hardest days of my life was waking up 
Christmas morning at a youth shelter and sending people out into the cold uh, during a pandemic. So uh, I've seen a lot of things working in tent camps. Uh, I kickstarted the uh, Brockville Street Friends with my friend Mark Dara, and now I'm trying to do the same thing down here in Mount Pearl. I've been a housing officer. I've worked in shelters, as I said. Uh, and I've also done the gig work economy like a lot of young professionals. And I'm currently, for the first time in my life, a university student. Uh, and I'm in a position to uh, continue my learning and uh, maybe not talk so much in those settings, which is refreshing and new for me. Uh, and uh, my love for Batman and professional wrestling will never go away, and neither will my love for punk rock. Awesome. Like like I said, sorry, and welcome my new co-host, Jojo, here. I decided to be yeah, hi, Jojo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time he's been on the podcast. Uh, well, I, I take that as a compliment. I'm a dog person. You can sense the vibes, and so it works for me. Um, yes, like I said, I, I just love the fact that, man, you are fearless, <laughs> or that's how it appears to me. You've done it all, and I think we talked about your political story back when they were like, yeah, you know, I it was it's that kind of, if it's going to be, it's up to me. I'm going to put my money where I'm at, you know, and you just do it. And a lot of the stuff that you've done, you've just done it. Uh, and you've seen it. And I love, yeah, the visible mark and the visible people. Yeah, check that out. I mean, just incredible stuff, stories uh, coming forward. Lee, how much does your, when you talk about your lived experience, uh, often on this podcast we talk, we call them lived experts, people with lived experience. How much does that play into the work or how does that affect the work that you do? If I'm being honest, I think my lived experience with poverty has probably been more impactful than my lived experience with homelessness. Right. Because in my circumstance, at least homelessness was based on an individual and a power imbalance. And while that's probably quite prominent and prevalent, as we know through statistical research, that's that's a significant factor for many people. It, it wasn't um, necessarily institutional bias. It, it wasn't, uh, you know, a, a chronic circumstance. Uh, the mental health piece I connect with, though, you know, I am a multi-time suicide attempt survivor. I won't say when the last attempt was because it might shock some of my friends in the sector who uh, you know look up to me or to confide in me or relate to me. Uh, but I can say you know that that's probably the most important discussion I could ever have with someone is uh, you know uh, rich or poor, good or bad. I, I shed a tear for Sinead O'Connor, you know, uh, and in ways that uh, I think sometimes it's it's easy to mourn a celebrity and get lost in that type of discussion because it's a universal ability to relate to someone on a universal level. And I respect that, but you know, sometimes we, we turn a blind eye to what we see in our own communities while we're putting other people on pedestals. But in her case, I thought, you know, that's someone I related to. There's someone who spoke their truth, even when their voice shaked, uh, it did them tremendous harm uh, on a uh, financial level, on an enterprising level, on a commercial success level. And they were right. And, and they didn't compromise. And I respect that so much. And I personally thought it was angelic and deserved better. I'm able to speak about that as someone who cannot imagine a day where, where I, I can't use my voice. Uh, and, and the idea that maybe that, that's a reality that a lot of people face, that, that's something I can relate to. And that's a reason to, uh, to do what I do. And I think that, you know, uh, suicide prevention and homelessness prevention and harm reduction, these are all interlocked issues. They all come back to a certain level of social inequity and the idea that we need to be a more robust, understanding, wholesome, fulsome, supportive and inclusive society. So I would say that, yeah, of course, my lived experience uh, matters. I remember having a discussion at a council meeting 
where, you know, I remember a counselor who uh, was taking a jab at me in jest, I'm sure, but it still was very condescending. I won't say names, we've made peace, but he said, uh, well, you know, Lee, a lot of us run Fortune 500 companies and you wouldn't know anything about that. So maybe you're not the person qualified to be making this budget. <laughs> to which I responded, uh, but I have had to feed my family on $40 in a week. So if anyone knows a thing or two about budgeting, I promise you it's me. I, uh, I love that, Lee, because I, I, was, I was at something recently and um, they were talking about youth homelessness. They're, they're giving out... Uh, um, they were, they were, it was a youth, it's a cash transfer. We're actually going to have Larry on to talk about it for point source for youth. And someone said, give a youth, you know, $2,000 a month. Oh man, what are they getting? He said, you need to check your adultism, whatever. Uh, he said, he said exactly what you did. He said, youth who had to live on nothing are the best budgeters in the world. You know, you get just like you said, he's like, yeah, you know, I never thought about it that way. Right. And if you've experienced having to do that. So the whole cash they're going to go out and do, well, maybe, you know, once, because, you know, hey, when you don't have money for a long time, it's hard not to. But you understand how to make a dollar stretch. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for that and for talking about your life. Being, for so, being so brutally honest uh, yeah. in, in sharing, I, you know, like I remember what when... What other ways there to be, Michael? What other ways there to be? Not everyone's that, right? I mean, you, you know, and I, if I'm being like brutally honest, sometimes... It's very tough because we have to walk these political lines, right? Like course, so when, I'm, when I'm when I'm talking with someone from, and I may not agree with a policy or practice or whatever, but if I come out too hard, to be honest, I mean, I, I'm going to bite the hand that feeds the organization, and I'm going to mm -hmm. actually hurt the people I serve sometimes. So I have to walk that line because it's not about Mike Braithwaite; it's about Bluedor and the clients, right? So oh, agreed, agreed. I, and, you know, I can relate to that too. I mean, I was a left-of-center social justice counselor in a, a very homogeneous community that uh, came from a very evangelical and fairly affluent background. It was completely Anglophone. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Bob Runsman, Steve Clark, uh, they're, they're good men. I, I, you know, despite the challenges I made, I have some opinions and I know it's easy for me to sit on this type of platform and beat up on uh, a former colleague because they happen to be a popular conversation piece at this moment. But what it comes down to is, is they went to the barbecues. They responded to the letters. They showed up at the grand openings. They listened to the constituents. Uh, and, you know, uh, Gord Brown, uh, you know, previously, uh, you know, he, he's, he's since departed. Uh, Gordon, I had a phenomenal relationship, and I respected him immensely, despite the fact that I I would never vote for him, and 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 I think he understood that, and I think that to some degree he 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 respected that I was at least willing to listen, and we were willing to build those 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 relationships, and maybe he could convince me, you know, you never close the door. There's been lots of great conservatives just because I've considered myself a left to center, you know, quasi you know liberal doesn't mean that you you close your mind to the idea that there's good ideas on both sides. Uh, and I think you're right. Sometimes being the brash, left of center, you know, social justice warrior and all of the connotations that come with a name like that. I much prefer the punk rock counselor. I think I'll keep that. <laughs> but, you know, like, yeah, I was, you have to toe a line sometimes. But then again, you also are in this position where you can also check some of those maybe traditional views and values as well and, and find that middle ground. You can only go so far left before you turn right by accident. And I think the same could be said in reverse, <laughs> right? So there's lots of libertarians out there. I have a lot of a lot in common with too, right? Well, let, let's talk a little bit about that. There's a lot going on in this world and I know you're attuned to it all. Let's talk about Canada. Um, and 
you know, things you mentioned, gas being a buck 88, uh, food costs going through the roof, rents across the country. Uh, recently in Toronto, it was, you know, they said you needed uh, income over $100,000 a year or $33 an hour to afford a one bedroom uh, apartment in the city um, with rents well over $2,000 a month. Oh, uh, uh, social assistance rates in Ontario, at least 700 and, you know, $30 a month haven't not changed in or are being below what they were in 1995. So a lot of pressure, a lot of things happening. We need 3 million homes plus across the country to maintain affordability. Uh, and the needle's not moving fast enough. We've got a lot of new Canadians coming in. Wonderful. It's awesome. However, putting more pressure on some of the housing challenges we have. What are your thoughts? I dumped a lot there, but but what, what I'm saying is lots happening you know, want to get your thoughts, what are, you know, on some of these challenges and what maybe some of the solutions are, what has to happen? Excellent. Well, I'll be the first one for starters to uh, take an opportunity to plug the Canadian House and Renewal Association, of which we both sit on the advocacy committee for. These are issues that, you know, we're confronted with quite regularly. And as the largest professional association of housing providers and advocates and activists in the country, I mean, they have their fingers on the pulse and are constantly putting out a variety of different uh, literature and advocacy sound bites that I think are quite relevant to a lot of these discussions. So definitely to the listeners I'm familiar with them, I'd encourage you to check them out. But uh, while I'm on that topic, I, you know, I, I have to say, you know, there's there's not one topic you just discussed that we haven't discussed previously and that we're not confronted with regularly and that I probably haven't reposted a post that you've made on your local LinkedIn page. You know, uh, these are not um, hidden issues. And that's one thing I can say uh, post-COVID that I think has been very helpful. Uh, and that is, is that the spotlight has been, whether it still is and whether it's been a completely sincere spotlight may be questionable, but there's been more emphasis on vulnerable and marginalized people now than probably any time in history, because these aren't new issues. They're just new to you issues sometimes to some of the listeners and the readers and the watchers. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of that started with the idea of isolating in place. A lot of it started when we were trying to flatten a curve and we look outside our, our bedroom or our, our apartment window and realize that there's people on the street who have nowhere to go. Uh, and then we saw the, the financial impact. You know, uh, with some of the newspaper articles recently that I thought were really interesting and some of those news stories about how you have chambers of commerce uh, get, talking about how uh, the, the, the small business loans that were received during COVID uh, should be paid back at a a much uh, longer rate of time and amortization because the economy has been hit so hard, but there was no residential rent relief program at all, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, what do we value in our society? Uh, it's so easy right now to, to beat up on landed migrants or immigrants or refugees. Uh, and it, I, I am so sick of that narrative. It pisses me off. And I will tell you exactly why. And I will say it till I'm red in the face and you can see it already. The fact is, is that one thing I see on social media, and sometimes it's by well-meaning people who I genuinely believe care. Maybe they're misguided. And maybe it's just a simple soundbite. Maybe it's one of these digestible pieces where it's we should be protecting and supporting our our youth and our battered women and our, our veterans before we spend money on on a, you know a, a refugee okay for starters uh we're the second largest land mass in the entire world uh we we literally have some of the most square footage per capita per person in the world we are a research a resource rich economy i live in a self-sustaining province 
surrounded by water, surrounded by food sources, surrounded by lumber, hydroelectricity. I have oil. I have all of those pieces. The only thing that stops those things from being readily accessible to our population sometimes is government. And I think it's really interesting. You know, I remember I was speaking at the Association of Municipalities of Ontario conference a number of years ago. And I remember this introduction. I thought it was really sincere. And I know that the speaker we meant well with this, but they said, we're about to have a conversation about one of the most complex issues uh, that we will be confronted with. And I thought, what a perfect lead in. So what was so complicated? What is so complicated? What will be so complicated about four walls on a roof? The only thing that's made it complicated is minimum square footages and minimum allotment sizes, uh, uh, joint and severed liability, you know, uh, uh, amortization rates. Uh, it's, 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 you know, a, a tiny homes on wheels, uh, you know, is a discussion that, you know, international building codes have provisions for, but Canada does not. Now, wouldn't that make the Attawapiskat flooding look a little different if, as opposed to during the pandemic, we had to use flights to, to move vulnerable people and expose other people to illness and expose them to other people's illnesses and then this whole smorgasbord of issues that we could have just moved their homes uh, just a few hundred feet? You know, like there's so many things that we've made very convoluted. And I think that that's where the, the social libertarian in me exists, despite my left to center beliefs, is sometimes bigger isn't better. And the idea that governments know best for us isn't always true. The idea that, uh, you know, I still hear these narratives. Uh, the fact is, is there's enough money, there's enough space, there's enough resource to help both the marginalized homeless person and the refugee. And in fact, our population is at risk of population collapse. We need new families. We need people in our economy that we hold so dear, so much so. I think it was Kurt Vonnegut who said something like, we'll be the first generation in the history of humankind, or, the, or we're the first uh, you know, civilization in, in the history uh, that, would, uh, that would not save ourselves because it wasn't uh, economically uh, expedient, or something of that nature. And, and I, you know, this, this, this pisses me off. I, I would hope that if for some reason, God, heaven forbid, whatever you pray to, whatever deity, that you know, if we ended up in some type of unfortunate conflict that became a human rights crisis and a civilian massacre, that someone would take my mother and my wife and, and say, there's a home for you here. And the idea that we're attaching dollar figures to that type of discussion, I think, is completely misplaced. And it's not who we are as human beings. No, no. And I hear different. I mean, so what I, I think, and this is what I hear from my team is, listen, I don't hear you saying this either, Lee veterans, uh, women fleeing violence, all those different populations absolutely still support. It means we can support them all, is not to put words in your mouth. But uh, New Canadians, we absolutely, it's the it's wonderful. And I'm so proud to be in a country that welcomes them. The challenge is right now, is not that we shouldn't be doing that, but the planning around it, what we see at government right now, unfortunately, is a little finger pointing where the feds are saying, hey, we gave you the money. You know, this is on you to, to deal with their vulnerable population. We've given the provinces that via the municipalities then the money to do it. And the municipalities are saying it's a federal issue because they're responsible for this. And so with both parties kind of, uh, you know, throwing their heads up, no one gets served. And so you have these new Canadians. And I've seen it uh, even at Blue Door where, where I work, uh, my team saying it's wonderful. They're so wonderful uh, to work with new Canadians. The challenge is. Uh, some of the we mean different kind of it's a different uh, challenge that they're facing 
some Definitely. there's trauma, but some of the work navigating the healthcare system, navigating the legal system to become. And when, when many Canadians come in, they're challenging because they, they're challenged because they don't know how to do that, finding a house, etc. So I think I agree with you all. I, I had a, a mayor recently, one of my favorite uh, mayors around, John Taylor in Newmarket, who said, listen, land's not the issue, just to your point. A ton of land. Now, is it serviceable land? No, not right now. And that's when, not to go political, but that's what, you know, some of the pushback on the, in Ontario around opening up the green belt has been, you know, we don't need more land. We have lots of land around. We we need serviceable land, right? And we need to be able to get the infrastructure out there. And that, that makes a difference. But you're right. I think we, we got to stop blaming and, and actually take action. And, and I don't know, like I, I've heard kicked around the, you know, people saying, could we do some kind of federal provincial summit on housing with some real action coming out of it where everyone agrees? I often think of what, what uh, the feds have done with childcare um, and with uh, what else? Child, child care and dental care and other like programs where they've struck agreements with the provinces on certain numbers uh, and really put money towards it to really get traction going uh, because we're a little stuck, man. Thoughts? For sure. For sure we're stuck. And, and again, as long as we're pitting vulnerable people and marginalized populations against each other, we're not addressing the root cause of these issues, which is, uh, you know, if we want to get political for a second, which I have no problem standing on that soapbox. Uh, I never <laughs> have. It's, uh, I'm, I've been, I've spent the last, uh, I, how many years have been, how many years is, has this current government been sitting? Is this 11 years? Uh, uh, no, no. Since 2015. Since 2015. Okay. So that's, Eight years. Okay, so I'm off by a few. I apologize, folks. Um, they do tend to run together sometimes when they have the same sound bites. Uh, uh, so, so let's go eight years. Eight years, I have been congratulating this this Liberal government on a national housing strategy and, and a willingness to come to the table and work on these issues. Uh, the same Liberal government, might I add, that when Paul Martin was finance minister, actually, let's take a step back. When Paul Martin was critic for CMHC, just a few years before that, he was advocating for new builds and actually wrote white papers talking about the importance of new builds and infrastructure to keep up with population demand and an aging climate. Uh, fast forward, he becomes finance minister and cancels our national housing uh, strategy, national housing act at that time. Uh, then downloads a number of the social services to the provinces and gives them options on that service delivery. So places like Ontario were that much further behind. I live in a have not province right now in, in uh, Newfoundland. Uh, the fact is, is that infrastructure has always been an issue, and and so has the effective uh, ability to deliver social services. Despite our small size, uh, needs continue, and the needs are universal. And in many cases, I think it's it's fair to say that there's a generational poverty problem in Newfoundland and Labrador, just like there are in many rural and remote places. Uh, and that exists because skilled labor tends to go somewhere else. Skills labor tends to to move on to other more productive climates, which I understand. Uh, as a transplant Newfoundlander, uh, I did the same. But I do think it's interesting that you know uh, now that we have a document in place, which is a working document. And kudos to uh, Adam Vaughn and to the fine folks who were very much on the forefront of this issue, um, long overdue. And and you know I think that uh, there was a lot of great documentation and a tremendous level of funding that did come out of it. However. We still don't have uh, the, uh, the 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 by indigenous for indigenous, uh, you know, uh, urban uh, urban indigenous uh, housing strategy that had been promised. Uh, we we know that that's the case. Uh, we also now have conflicting sound bites. In one week, I'm hearing Pierre Polivier tell somebody who lives in Niagara that their home is a shack. 
you know, uh, in the next week, I'm listening to Justin Trudeau say that uh, uh, housing is, is, is a provincial municipal responsibility and that they've done all that they can do. When in fact, that's, that's not entirely accurate, <laughs> you know, uh, for starters. Uh, and and I, think, I think that was Trisha Bitt where he said, it's, not a pri it's primarily not federal, that it, it, it resides with the provinces. And I'm not, I'm not jumping or, or siding with anyone, but I think saying, deflecting at all when you're in a crisis, not a good way. Bingo. <laughs> it, it undoes the good things that your government did. It undoes the, the, the effort that you have made when you now say, well, we've done all we can, it's now it's your turn. No, I think it'd be fair to say, we need our partners to come to the table because we can't do this ourselves. Yes. I think that that's a fair comment, but to sit here and minimize uh, a federal government's involvement, specifically historically when housing has been such a central part of our infrastructure and wartime housing, and we were doing it better and best for years. But the fact is that uh, a new home is more expensive in many cities in this country than it is uh, to our southern brothers and sisters down in the United States who are significantly more landlocked than we are. So I think that when you consider that they have a smaller uh, geography and I can buy a home there for cheaper, I see a problem. And I think the problem, again, becomes convoluted by government because ultimately the land is there. So ultimately the four, the four walls and a roof, as I, I minimize it, I mean, you can make it what you want it to be, but you catch my drift, is that the infrastructure itself is not complicated. It's, it's the, uh, the decisions that, that, that decide who, uh, who is ultimately responsible for the welfare of, of the people that they serve, represent the constituents, the tax base, those who are in need. And another level of uh, pitting, uh, you know, chronic, uh, chronically pitting, uh, you know, uh, some level of marginalized person against uh, some other society and other infrastructure. I think that that's unfortunate that it's almost though, not only do we expect a certain, not only do you have to earn our support, uh, not only do you then have to navigate multiple tools and multiple uh, uh, institutions to garner said support, but you best be grateful for it as well. And I think that those messages, I think, turn a lot of people off. And I think not only do they turn a lot of people off, but it also keeps a lot of us in the dark. Uh, there are people out there. I remember when I started the Brothel Street Friends as an example. It wasn't that people didn't care about homelessness. They didn't know where to start. So many times what we found is someone would say, listen, I've got, I've got uh, some type of, uh, you know, insulation. Can this be useful? Nine times out of 10, no. But to that person who just bought a tiny home, yeah, I could probably find a home. Hey, you know, I've got a line on, could someone use a mattress? Well, I can't give it to a homeless person because they can't drag it around, but I bet I can find a brand new family who could be very beneficial, but very grateful for that. And so a lot of what I ended up doing was connecting the dots, like some type of thrift store. But it was amazing at the same time, as challenging as it was at points, and as, as nominal as it seemed, and as, as nonchalant as so much of it may have been, it was so rewarding to know that there were people in my community who were turning to me before they were turning to the institution, turning to me before they were turning to a government who they, many of them believed, had, had not done this issue justice. They wanted to help. They just didn't know how. And I think that as a population, that's probably a very reflective comment. When, when you're reading a Globe and Mail, or you're reading a Toronto Star, or you're reading an Ottawa or Toronto Sun newspaper, you're getting very different uh, messages as to what is and is not someone's responsibility, and why are we, we should or should not care about 
our, our brothers and sisters and those who identify otherwise on the streets of our, our cities. And I think that uh, as long as there's a political will to pass the buck, there's going to be a political will to ignore the issue. And as long as the political will to ignore the issue exists, what it really means is there was no political will at all. And, and frankly, we have, uh, we have a land. I think they said it in uh, Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. You know, I think that, that the opportunity exists in our society, and we've seen what happens when people invest in housing and invest in infrastructure. I'm not indemnifying or condemning anyone who comes to the table with well-meaning strategy and well-meaning ideas and philosophies. But, you know, there's a no shortage of data, as I mentioned early in this process. And currently I'm working on data, as you know, Michael, talking about why it makes sense to invest in housing. And the fact is, is that uh, not only do you need the employer to come to your home, uh, to your city, to your town, to your neck of the woods. You need somewhere for those workers they will attract to work because otherwise that employer might not find your community so desirable. If you're a tourism-based economy, you need to think about that. If you are dealing with an aging population, you need to think about this. Uh, do you have a, 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 a post-secondary school in your community? Well, you need to think about this. Uh, and these issues are as equally as economically important as they are on a human rights level, significant and important. And I think that we need to remember that we all play a role in this discussion. It's not just a matter of who does and doesn't. It's, it's everyone. No, you got it, man. Listen, I can talk to you for hours. I, I love chatting with you. It's so engaging and so honest and forward. Let's end the podcast on a hopeful note. What are your hopes for the future? What, like, what are you hoping for in the next little while? You talked about doing some research and talking about it. And I agree with you. Listen, it's not only doing the right thing and a human rights thing and saving lives, but there's an economic argument. But what are your hopes? What does Lee hope for uh, in the next few years? There's probably two or three, and I think that they're important notes to end on, actually. So I appreciate that because I got to come down off the soapbox or I'll just work myself into a frenzy. What did they say? You're working yourself into a shoot, brother. Okay, so here's where it is. And this is what I think is relevant. Um, Right now, my community that I live in has become perplexed uh, and, and uh, are overwhelmed by the tragedy of opioid-related deaths. Uh, and it's fairly new here. Now, that doesn't mean it didn't exist. And that doesn't mean that there hasn't been misdiagnosed. That doesn't mean that there hasn't been a variety of different strengths and circumstances and unreported numbers and figures. But, by and large, there's a distinct difference between the... Uh, the opioid crisis that's here in St. John's and maybe some of the ones that we've almost become accustomed to for lack of a more appropriate word. It's almost like you tune out to some degree when you're in Ottawa where there's a million people or you're in Vancouver where it's been a phenomenon for so long and has risen between 21 and 27 percent or something since since 2019 in terms of overdoses and deaths related to this issue. Here that number is small. That doesn't change the fact that in a community of this many hundred thousand people, 550,000 people on this island, the chances that it might just impact you or someone you know are probably high or higher, at least per capita, than many places in the country. And sadly, it seems as though, much like when we were talking about homeless veterans versus Syrian refugees, etc., it almost has to impact you personally many times before you uh, can really turn your mind to it. Uh, for me, as someone who's worked in shelters, uh, I can say that no less than 10 or 15 people who I loved, who I fought for, 
who I advocated for served and worked with. I've gotten messages from people I worked with who said they're no longer with us. They died alone on a park bench. If I had one hope in the world, it's that no one ever does that again. Unfortunately, that's not the reality that I live in. So I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can with the time that I have to see as little of that as goddamn possible. Because uh, I see, you know, uh, there's a mother in our community right now who's putting together a rally and she lost her son. And I'm so proud of her. I'm so proud of anyone who can take such a terrible trauma and turn it into activism with the idea of making the world a better place for someone else tomorrow. Rightly or wrongly, no matter if you know all of the, the key details and can cite all those statistics, as I said at the beginning, humanizing these stories is fundamentally more important than giving me a dollar figure or a spreadsheet or a line item. Uh, if I had one choice, it would be that uh, I would like to be living in a world where I could work myself out of a job. I heard Tim Richter say that at the first conference uh, many uh, years ago in Ottawa for the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. Right now, I'm a loss prevention officer. Uh, in my, that's one of my moonlight gigs. Wouldn't it be nice if I was able to focus on people who were doing things nonchalantly and fraudulently for, for you know, completely self-serving purposes and instead I, I find myself focusing so many times on crimes of desperation and theft under $5,000 by someone who is struggling and I understand that and it hurts and you know I recently someone was apprehended and first words out of his mouth were I hope you don't think less of me I don't I want to live in a world where we don't think less of each other because we're desperate and sad and stuck and fractured and, and, and life didn't work out as maybe we were promised it would, or we were taught not to believe it could. So if there's anything I want is I want to stop mourning the potential that I've, that I see in others that I married, you know, that that type of thing is, is, is brutal because when you marry yourself to someone's potential, it's a very expensive divorce, especially in today's society. Uh, especially when people are often still cutthroat and we're judged by how many dollars we bring in and all the things that we can be and all the things that, you know, there's so often we hear these political sound bites about being relatable and I, he tells it like it is. And we want someone who's real. No, no, no. You want someone who echoes your thoughts in, in, in the chamber, uh, you know, in a silo. But if they expose themselves as vulnerable, many times it's to their detriment. I don't want to live in a world where Sinead O'Connor ever goes to bed wondering if she's enough. My gosh, what a talent. What an incredible voice. How many nights did that person spend wondering if they were worth anything before they took their life? I, I don't want to live in this world. I want to live in a world where, Michael, you know I love you. And, and to the people listening, if uh, you, know, you, you can always sit with me. It's not like the Mean Girls cast, you know, that, that doesn't exist in my world. I want to live in a world where we stop looking at spreadsheets and dollar figures and buying up available bedrooms and buying up available properties so that other people can't start their life and have that same stability. I am so grateful to provide for my mother. That's what I want, and that's what I hope we'll see. But that's not going to happen over there. That's going to happen with a lot more pissed-off conversations. No, but hey, take this for what it's worth. If a few people listen to this and they're inspired, as I'm sure they are, because they always are when they they hear you speak, Lee, uh, I certainly am, to do more. If we all do just a little more, this would be a great place, right? I mean, uh, you talked about 
the, the grocery store piece and, and i'll just you know where the grocery stores that are, are reporting these these like giant profits are saying we're spending more and more on security because and i don't want to put you out of a job that's not what i'm saying but we're spending more and more on security because more you know people are taking more and more happy and, and why do you think that's happening because they have to right because life has forced them to so maybe instead of spending more and more on security again we don't want Leo out of a job but you know have you thought about maybe <laughs> dropping prices a little bit so they wouldn't have to do that right there's an answer here and many sure. of them are, are yeah. simple but yeah. these these are tough times but having uh people you know voices like yours in the conversation certainly give myself and the listeners in our country a lot of hope. We never stop doing what you're doing. We're so grateful for it. I'm grateful for it. Our sector is grateful for it. And thank you so much uh, for coming on the show, taking the time out of your crazy schedule to uh, share with us. It's always a real treat. If I could close on one thing, it seems you got a little emotional there in the last minute. And I wanted to say, uh, Michael, you, you've spent your life you've dedicated your life to making the world a better place for a lot of people who don't have this platform. So I thank you too. Uh, the world could use a few more reviews as well. <laughs> Thanks uh, so much, man. This is about pleasure. you though. <laughs> Have a, thank you so much, Lee. Uh, and to everyone, we'll see you next time on the way home. Cheers. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.